be seated. You can open your copy of the Word of God with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12, as we look at verses 14 through 21 on this, what we celebrate, the Epiphany Sunday. Epiphany is on uh, the 6th of the month, and it marks the manifestation or the appearing of Christ to the Gentiles, as we see chiefly in Matthew chapter 2 and the story of the visit of the wise men from the east. In light of our installation of new offices this morning and the epiphany, I ran across this uh, wonderful passage of Scripture in the book of Matthew in chapter 12, uh, verses 14 through 21. Now the context of these words is really the greater part of chapters 11 and 12. They present the major rejection of Christ led by the religious leaders, chiefly the scribes and the Pharisees. In this particular chapter, at the beginning, they criticize Jesus for healing a man's withered hand on the Sabbath. And then for allowing his disciples to pick the heads of grain in the wilderness to eat. Again, on the Sabbath. After Jesus put them to shame by showing that their Sabbath traditions were hard-hearted, illogical, and unscriptural, the Pharisees went out and counseled together against him as to how they might destroy him. And that's what verse 14 says. That is the context for our passage. These ungodly leaders believed the very opposite of the truth about Jesus even to the point of accusing him of doing his work by the power of Satan, which they will do later. Right in the middle of this growing antagonism, Matthew offers a reflection about the Lord Jesus from one of the servant songs in the prophet Isaiah. You see in your text the words that are all capitalized. They are from Isaiah chapter 42, as the prophet speaks of God's servant to come. And I think what triggered Matthew to do this is verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, how they were going to come and kill him, withdrew from there. And he kept on healing people. He kept on doing good. It's amazing to me that these men wanted to kill Jesus, one who did nothing but go around doing good. Showing kindness, healing bodies, opening eyes. Removing leprosy. But they did. And even as Jesus healed them, he warned them in verse 16, and the better word is commanded them not to tell who he was. I believe that this triggered Matthew's thinking. And Matthew reflected on this passage in Isaiah. The picture of God's servant. I believe Matthew points out three characteristics of Jesus as God's Messiah that I would like for us to consider uh, this morning in this passage, and these are the three. He mentions his appointment by God in verse 18, and then his approach to ministry, which we see in verses 19 and 20a, and then finally his atonement for sinners in verse 20b and 21. So along with an outline of the message, join me in prayer. Let's ask God to illuminate our minds. We look at Scripture together this morning. 
Heavenly Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing and acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Father, we wish to see Jesus and him only. And we pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would move on our hearts, encourage us, convict us, lead us into all truth, nourish and sustain us, all according to and by your word. We'll give you the praise and glory for the outcome. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first of all, I want you to notice his appointment by God. And you see that in verse 18. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. The Lord Jesus comes as God's chosen, beloved, and pleasing servant. What a marvelous picture. He is not self-appointed, but he willingly cooperates with God's will. He does not come as a powerful, demanding monarch or a loud, charismatic leader, but as a quiet servant. Reminded of words in another place, the Son of Man, Jesus said of himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He also comes endowed with the Holy Spirit, according to verse uh, 18b. Yahweh will put his spirit on his servant, so the servant will speak and act according to God's will and authority and word. This is not someone who practices self-advertisement like the scribes and the Pharisees did. No, this the Lord Jesus comes in the quiet power of the Holy Spirit. And he comes to proclaim justice to the Gentiles. What a marvelous word for this passage. Our God is a God who is just. The Bible says the judge of all the earth will do right. He is no respecter of persons, and there is no evil in him. And so what does it mean that he will proclaim God's justice? Well, the bedrock of that means he will proclaim the good news of the gospel. See, the mystery of God's grace and kindness to all people, both Gentiles as well as Jews, Paul says in Romans 3 that God demonstrates his righteousness by being just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Acts 17.31, the Apostle Paul in his sermon on in Athens said, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished truth to all men by raising him from the dead. What a marvelous statement. God will judge, and he will judge through the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet all those who are in Christ will not be condemned. When God looks at you, if you're in Christ, He sees His Son. Now, the beauty of this is the fact that as Jesus is appointed by God, we Christians, sons and daughters of God, we have a share in Christ's appointment. That is to say, God looks at us with the same selection and satisfaction as He has toward His Son. 
Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. All of that is true about you if you're in Christ Jesus. God looks at you, and he sees his son. And he is well pleased. He is satisfied. You have his spirit upon you. And we as brothers and sisters in Christ have been given the marvelous task to go and proclaim justice to those on the fringe, Gentiles, us included. We're called to carry out this marvelous ministry of the gospel. But I want you to mark, ladies and gentlemen, that Christ's appointment in many ways is your appointment. He loves you. You are a chosen instrument, well-pleasing in His sight. You have His Spirit upon you, and you have a task to show forth the praises of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Well, not only does He have an appointment by God, but notice, secondly, His approach to ministry. Look at verses 19 and 20a. It's characterized by two things, meekness and gentleness. First, meekness. Look at verse 19. He will not quarrel nor cry out. Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. You know, the Jewish religious leaders were always making their presence known. They were self-righteous. They were condemning. They were two-faced. They were cruel towards God's people. They made a public show of their so-called practice of righteousness. And they postured themselves far above all the other fellow Jews. They considered the Gentiles to be dogs, less than Jews. Jesus did not fit their expectations of who Messiah would be. Unlike themselves, Jesus did not seek the attention of the crowds. He did not practice self-advertisement. No, he did not come wielding power against the Romans. He demonstrated the quiet power of God by his quiet, non-assuming manner of life and the miracle. You see, Jesus didn't have to be a charismatic personality. He didn't have to do signs and wonders for people to see. He did them, but he concealed them as much as possible until his time had come. But he demonstrated the power of God in a very, very quiet manner. The Pharisees completely overlooked Jesus' miraculous power because they had no interest in ministering to the physical and spiritual needs of of the people. Jesus came first and foremost to preach the kingdom, but also to demonstrate God's meekness, the lowliness, if you will. The Pharisees and the scribes were obsessed with money and power and control. Doesn't that describe so much of the landscape of religion in North America these days? power and money and control, the Lord Jesus came and had no place to lay his head. He didn't seek control of all the Jews or of Rome, and his power was unlike any power the people had ever seen. He was meek. You know, when you're really strong and secure, you don't have to make a lot of noise. I remember in seminary, our professor of preaching said, Watch out for gentle unction. And we all scratched our heads and said, what is that? He says, it happens when you're preaching a sermon. And you take upon yourself to make it effective. 
so you may pound the pulpit a little harder. And the inflection of your voice may go in several different directions. And all the time inside, you're trying your best to do the work of the Holy Spirit. Instead of standing back and trusting God's Word to go forth by the power of His Spirit and touch and move hearts that don't go into ministry with gentle unction. Make sure the unction is of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was meek and lowly. But he was also gentle. Look at his gentleness in verse 28. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out. God's servant, as recorded in Isaiah 42, would come with gentleness and compassion for those who hurt. You know, reeds were used for various tasks in the ancient world, but a bent or battered reed was considered useless. The same is true of a smoldering wick. Useless and needs to be extinguished. My wife Diane and I put out luminaries in our neighborhood, which we do every year at Christmas time. And this year, uh, the, the wick was, you know, it was smoldering. They're supposed to light up so the bag can be seen from far away. But we came home from Christmas Eve service and we couldn't see anything in the front yard. We had a bunch of smoldering wicks ready for the trash. You see, these two figures point to the objects of this servant's ministry. The servant will serve people who look like they're about to be snapped off or snuffed out. Those who are good for nothing in the world's eyes. We might call them the losers or the marginalized. Can't help but think of Christ's or Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1.26. Consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, so that he might nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before him. Jesus came with all the gentleness of a tender shepherd. He is meek and lowly, and he is the gentle one. He cares for people. And he cares for those with great sensitivity. You can see it all the way through his ministry. Jesus is the one who went through Miss Samaria and found that woman at the well, the woman who was immoral, the woman who was a social outcast, and he loved her and he spoke to her. And he won her over to himself. He's the one who saw the widow at Nain coming out of the city, who had no husband, and her only son had died, and they were carrying the buyer. And Jesus, filled with compassion, reached out and touched the coffin and raised up that young man. He's the one who hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. You know, Diane and I watched episode after episode, every night, go home of the Andy Griffith show. Now, I've been pondering that and wondering, number one, why are we obsessed with this show? Could be the fact that it's the only thing on worth watching, one of the few things worth watching. And they show episode after episode. There's one station that starts at four and they end at eight. One half-hour episode after another. We've seen them all about five or ten times. Why don't I get tired of this? 
And I'll tell you why, I think. Because the character, Andy Taylor, demonstrates a sort of Messiah figure. He is meek, and he's gentle. He's the sheriff without a gun. He's the one who sees a drunk like Otis and does everything he can to help and assist him in time of need. He's not like Barney. Barney's always seeking the limelight. Barney always has all the answers to everything he thinks. But Andy is quiet and understanding, and he never allows Barney to overly embarrass himself. He's like a Christ figure. And that's the way the Lord Jesus is with us. So no wonder I enjoy watching that over and over again, because I believe we see in that character a glimmer of what Jesus is the gentle and lowly one who comes to us in our weakness, in our bent lives because of sin, our lives that are smoldering sometimes because of the lack of love and pain that others have caused. He comes to you, and he says to you, come to me. As he said in Matthew 11, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly or humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is the meek one. He has come to address our needs of the broken and smoldering lives that sin has made of us. And he calls us to share in this ministry. You see, this is applicable too, because Jesus' meekness and gentleness needs to be ours toward one another and toward the world. We need to observe the world and be sensitive to the needs of those around us, because in here, as well as out there, there are lives that are bent and falling over, about to break. Marriages, young people, Many of them are smoldering wicks, about to go out. I read the story just the other day of the man who drove his uh, car off a cliff, I believe, out in California or Washington State with his wife and two children in the car. That's the way our world is. It's characteristic of our world. It's out of control. It is in need of a Savior, in need of healing. That is his approach to ministry, characterized by meekness and gentleness. Now, quickly... Thirdly, his atonement for sinners. Look at verse 20b and 21. Until he leads justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Not only will the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, proclaim God's justice to a world of Gentile sinners, he will act, he will lead justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. You say, well, if John... How does this phrase point to Christ's atonement for sin? I'm glad you asked that question. I'm glad you asked that question. First, consider where we would be with a just God who hates sin, exercising his justice toward us without Christ Jesus. Consider that. God's unhindered justice would lead to our defeat and our demise because we all stand guilty and unrighteous before a holy God. There would be no victory in God's justice. Our just desert would be that we would be condemned. No happy ending. 
one, because we haven't measured up to the just demands of God's law. God is absolutely holy. And he hates sin. He doesn't even want to look at it. And we were born dead in trespasses and sins. We have not measured up to the demands of God's holy law. And it's worse than that. We cannot make payment for our violations against God's law. We haven't measured up, and we can never pay for how we have not measured up. And so to get God's full justice upon us would be defeat. There is no good news. Nevertheless, the Lord Jesus Christ came to accomplish both of these objectives on our behalf. You see, He lived a sinless life. He never sinned. And that sinless life satisfies the just demands of God's law. He is the only one who could do that. And if that weren't enough, through His death on the cross, He made full and complete payment or satisfaction for all of our violations against God's law. You see, God's wrath is poised toward those who are sinners. And yet the Lord Jesus came and lived a perfect life and then died on the cross and became the object of all the wrath of God as an atoning sacrifice for your sins and mine. And through His death on the cross, He makes full and complete satisfaction. As a result, Jesus leaves God's judgment to victory. You see, judgment is a given. It has to happen. Because God is absolutely holy. But His just wrath fell upon His own Son. The wrath that was owed to you and me. And if that weren't enough, the Lord Jesus makes payment for all of our sins and then He gives us righteousness. That God demands that we lack and that only He can provide. And that's why Paul can say there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. As he would later say in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And in verse 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in 1 John 5, 4, whatever is born of God, John says, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Yes, Christ led God's judgment, not to defeat, but to victory. And He did that by giving His life as a ransom for many. In spite of oppression and persecution and rejection, Jesus was destined to be victorious. And when Christ returns as Lord and King, justice will, as Amos says, roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing spring. That is something to be experienced now and later. We need to experience the peace and the joy of having our sins forgiven and being made right with God and having His wrath satisfied so that when He looks at you and He looks at me, He sees us once again in Christ Jesus. And He says, that's my beloved. That's my chosen one. That's my servant. And I put my spirit on the passage concludes with hope. In His name, the Gentiles will hope. Let me ask you a question. Who or what is the object of your hope for 2023? 
I pray it's the Lord Jesus. For in Him all the treasures of God are found. He is the express likeness of the Father. He is God in flesh. And when you come to know Him in a relationship by faith, where you trust Him and turn from your life of sin and turn to Him in faithfulness and obedience, it all begins to make sense. And He will lead you just like He leads Jesse. His glory and honor. Let's pray together. Lord, as we approach this table, remind us of these precious truths that you, as a suffering servant, came to display your glory and your grace and mercy to the entire world, not just the Jews. And that, Lord, in you, the full justice of God is so that in us, a work of grace and forgiveness can take place, so that we can belong to you, O God, by faith in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that every one of us would know the joy and the peace and the satisfaction of these realities as we begin a new year. Make it so by your Spirit. And Lord, we'll give you the praise and glory for all that you will do in every one of our hearts. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.